Good morning, everyone. Uh, for our guest, my name's Anton. I'm Senior Minister here. And we've just read an account of one of the most famous, famous meals in history. Of all the meals that uh, people have eaten through history, there aren't too many famous meals. There's famous people or famous events, but not too many famous meals. Can anyone think of another famous meal at all? Anyone, any famous... Shah's famous banquet. Not famous enough that I've heard about it, but yeah, great, good. <laughs> so, you know, it's very difficult to think of another famous film. This one, though, this one is, uh, uh, you know, this one is, this one is famous. Uh, it's, uh, even got its own painting, uh, that we, that we know of, and it's reenacted in our churches around the world. And we'll do that later this service as well. But this meal is not just well-known, it is hugely significant if you're a follower of Jesus. Not just for what happened at this meal, not just the event, but what it, what it does is it takes us to the centre, the core of the Christian faith. Because what we've just read is not merely an historical account. It is the Word of God. And this Word is vitally important to your faith. And so if you've put your trust in Jesus, my prayer is it will be deeper, having heard the word of God today. Or if you have not put your trust in Jesus at the moment, this is a great word from God to help you see who Jesus is and what his death means for you. So let me pray as we turn to God's word. Heavenly Father, what a Father you are who speaks to us. What a God who speaks. Thank you that you have this word for us to hear today. Help us to see Jesus clearly by what you say, so that we may strengthen and deepen our faith in him. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we head back to the scene that we've been going on, uh, going through in the last few weeks. Uh, back then, thousands of people swarmed into Jerusalem to celebrate the festival of uh, the festival of uh, unleavened bread. You see, in Mark chapter fourteen, if you've got your Bible there, feel free to turn to that. Uh, and now I've worked out how my pages work. There we go. Uh, We've seen that uh, the religious authorities have been building up their their uh, opposition to Jesus. There have been uh, plenty of rumblings of, uh, of uh, an attempts to trap Jesus in his words. They want Jesus out of the way. Jesus is upsetting the established order. But the crowds are loving him, celebrating his miracles and appreciating his teaching. And tonight starts the, the, the big conflict moment, uh, which we'll see over the next few weeks leading up to Easter, where Jesus enters Jerusalem, the holy city. He walks into the lion's den, as it were. And you can see in your Bibles that uh, our passage starts with the festival of unleavened bread. That is, bread that doesn't rise. It's got no leaven, no yeast in it, flatbread. It's one of the big Jewish religious festivals, 
and both, uh, both back then and also now for Jewish people. It's a festival that happens once a year to remember the great salvation moment of Israel when God saved his people from being slaves in Egypt, as Deborah read for us. And at the center of this festival is the Passover, a special meal reenacting the night and remembering the night where the Hebrews had to get ready to leave Egypt quickly, where they killed a lamb, painted its blood on the doorposts so that that night God could save them from the judgment he was inflicting on Egypt, on the Egyptians, and save them from their slavery to live as free people. Well, what we've just read in our Mark reading is the night where Jesus supplants the Passover, where he brings in a new era of salvation, a salvation that is for you and for me. Uh, and so he needs to head to Jerusalem because that's where the Passover was celebrated. Uh, Mark, the author of this account, reminds us in verse 12 that it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb. So you've got thousands of people in Jerusalem and they're all sacrificing uh, a lamb to remember the salvation of God. Coincidentally, um, uh, we cooked lamb for dinner last night. We had some people over. And every time they walked past the barbecue, they, just the smell was, you know, they, they mentioned the smell of how good the lamb uh, was. Can you imagine the city of Jerusalem packed to the brim of people, lamb being cooked everywhere? What a scene. And Jesus is about to head in. But as we saw uh, in the in the story of the donkey, the cult, uh, he sends a couple of his disciples ahead to go prepare the Passover. He goes, go into the city and you'll see a man carrying a jar of water. And you go, well, how, how's that going to work? There's thousands of people in Jerusalem. Surely people are carrying water everywhere. Well, this man probably would have stood out a little bit because back then uh, it, was the, it was women who carried water for the household. And so, you know, if today, you know, like, you know, head into Sydney and, and find the, and you'll see a man carrying a handbag. That's kind of the, you know, it's, it's possible that they would find this person. He'd stand out. Anyway, follow him to the house, to his house. And, uh, in that house will be the place where we'll celebrate the Passover. And that's exactly how it was. They followed, they found the man, they followed him, and, uh, the, uh, room was all ready, and so those two disciples prepared the Passover. Why is that little detail recorded for us? Well, it shows that once again, Jesus is in total control of these events. He's not being swept up with, uh, with uh, all the, you know, with uh, things beyond his control. He was never a helpless victim Everything was intentional for Jesus. Everything was part of the plan. And so, everything is prepared. Dinner time comes, and Jesus arrives at the house with the 12 disciples. And the Passover had all kinds of... The, the meal itself it was not just, uh, okay, here's the food, let's eat. It had, uh, it had different rituals that you followed year on year. 
I've eaten the Passover with uh, some friends, uh, or some family friends before, a couple of times in my life. And uh, there are different parts of the meal where you eat particular types of food to remember uh, particular points of the Exodus story. So we eat bitter herbs at one point to remember the bitterness of being slaves in Egypt. There are various words to recite and questions to be asked and answers given, all designed to remember God's great saving act, God rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt. All seems to be going fairly straightforwardly. Thousands of other people would be celebrating the same meal. But at this meal, Jesus drops a bombshell. He says, verse 18, have a look. He said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Now, in Leonardo da Vinci's famous painting, now, firstly, it wouldn't have really looked like that. They wouldn't have had a big, you know, we're used to sitting up on trestle tables and with chairs around. No, they would have been lounging around, would have looked different. I think uh, the people would have been fairly less European and more Middle Eastern as well. But what it does convey is the commotion between the disciples when Jesus said this, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Now for the 11, how must they be feeling? They have followed Jesus for for three years now. They gave up their livelihoods and and their uh, their, their hometowns to follow Jesus. And so they say, surely you don't mean me, one by one. Maybe it's like if I said, one of you is going to steal $50,000 this week. One of you here in this room. Now, most of you will be thinking, oh, surely not me. Why on earth would I steal $50,000? How on earth could I steal $50,000? Anyone thinking that? What if it was me? What what would I? How would I get it? Now you probably won't do it, God willing. But who knows what will happen this week? Um, so eleven of them, eleven of the disciples, they, they, you know, they're going. Will it be me? I don't think it's going to be me. But what the eleven didn't know is that number twelve. One of them knew it was him. Eleven were thinking, probably not me, surely not me. But one of them knew it was him. Because just flick back, uh, you in chapter 14, just flick to the end of chapter 13 in your Bible. We read it last week, look what just happened. Verse 10 of chapter, uh, sorry, sorry, 14 verse 10, same chapter, last week's passage, 14 verse 10 said, then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, he went to the chief priests to, de- to, to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So Jesus had already, sorry, Judas had already arranged to betray Jesus. So when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, he knew it was him. 
Now, he was thwarted with the opportunity to hand Jesus over as he went into Jerusalem. Because, remember, two other disciples had been sent to find a location and the other disciples didn't know where they were going. He didn't get the chance to tip him off then, so there's another, he'll need to wait for an opportunity down the track. But now Jesus knows. He knows. How does he know, Jesus? Judas must be thinking? You know, was he, what was Judas going through at that moment? Was he panicking that Jesus knew? Or was he cold? Cold-hearted? And he said, well, surely you don't mean me. Has he lied to Jesus' face? We don't know. But what will happen? Now that Judas knows that Jesus knows, what will he do? What will Judas do? Will Judas own up to it? Will he confess and even repent and ask for forgiveness? Will Jesus step in and stop him? Expose him so that the plot fails? Well, none of those things happen. And Jesus explains why. Have a look at verse 21. Got on the screen as well. Jesus says, the Son of Man himself, the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. There's two key things in this verse. Firstly, the Son of Man will go just as it has been written about him. They're saying Jesus is not going to stop these events he must let them play out because nothing will stop the foreplan of God. All the Old Testament has pointed towards Jesus being betrayed and sacrificed. Jesus has to be betrayed and go to his death. But that doesn't let Judas off the hook. Within the plan of God, God holds us responsible for how we treat him. And his son. And so the second half of the verse, Judas will be held to account for his betrayal. And there are terrible consequences for the one who betrays God's son. Now we can get all hung up over a verse like this. Between, hang on, if God's got everything planned, how can we have any control at all? Or how can God hold us responsible for what we do? But the Bible presents things quite clearly. God's plan will prevail. He will bring all things under the lordship of Jesus. But within that plan, God gives us responsibility to how we live, to what we do, to how we relate to others, and how we treat God and his Son. And so we can hold those things together, knowing that God's plan will continue, but knowing that God will keep us responsible. We will answer to him. But back to the meal. Jesus has revealed there's a betrayer among them. Surely the tension in the room increased dramatically. And if there's a betrayer and Jesus doesn't stop him, then he will go to the cross and die, just as he had said. And so in the middle of the Passover meal, 
the meal where they sacrifice a lamb and eat it to remember the Lord's salvation, Jesus takes this Passover opportunity to rewrite the festival, to refocus his attention, our attention from God's past act of salvation to God's better, complete future act of salvation. There's no mention of the lamb at dinner in this account because Jesus not only presides at the feast, he is the feast. Let me read again. Have a look at verse 22. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they drank and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. So Jesus is doing something a bit weird. Uh, he's saying, this bread, this bread, it represents my body. It represents my whole self. And I'm giving my whole self to you. And then this wine, which you've all just drunk, it's my blood. I'm giving you my very life to drink. So in giving the bread and the wine, he's saying, all that I am, I am giving to you. My whole life, I give to you. I am the sacrificial lamb that brings salvation to you. And Jesus does this in the form of a meal. He doesn't just declare the truth. He shares it as a meal. And so as the disciples shared this meal with Jesus, so they will share in his death by faith. As they receive the physical nourishment from this shared meal, so they will receive the spiritual blessing, the spiritual nourishment of sharing in his sacrificial death. And then Jesus mentions, I'm going to put this down before I spill it. Uh, Jesus mentions the new covenant that comes in. The new covenant. A covenant with God is a personal, unbreakable commitment between God and his people. God made a covenant through Moses. If you remember our Exodus series last year, this covenant involved the sprinkling of blood on the people when it was inaugurated. It was God committing himself to his people and calling on their commitment to him. But of course, through the Old Testament story, God's people failed in their commitment to him. And so a new covenant was promised. And so the prophet Jeremiah, in the midst of, of the covenant breaking down, God gives them this prophecy he says in Jeremiah 31, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. Sorry, let me start again. This is the covenant I will make 
with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbour to say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Jesus at the meal of the Last Supper is saying, In my sacrificial death, which is symbolised through the bread and the wine, I am bringing this new covenant. All that is promised here is coming. I'm inviting you to enter into this covenant as you participate in eating and drinking. I am bringing this new commitment from God where you can know God himself, where you can have him as your Lord and where God will forgive all your wickedness, not even remembering your sins anymore. I don't know about you, but every now and again I'm just haunted by some of the sins I've done in the past. There are some I look back on and just want to, you know, mentally beat myself up over them. You know, I can't believe I did that. Or I'm so ashamed that I did that to that person. Or I really wish I'd treated that situation differently. All I want to do when I think about them is forget about them. And not feel the pain and humiliation that comes with them. But through the sacrifice of Jesus, one of the most things I treasure most is that my sins are forgotten by God. God chooses to forget them. And he forgives them. He doesn't just, all right, I'll forget them, put them to the one side. But he deals with them. All is forgiven through Jesus giving his body and blood for me. And so I'm so thankful to God sending Jesus. I can't imagine what it was like for Jesus to give his life to me. And I'm well aware that I don't deserve it. But I'm so thankful that he did. So thankful. And so as I've been dwelling on this passage through the week, uh, Katie and I are planning some holidays. We did some planning this week. This is much more important than holidays. Uh, we had a lovely extended family gathering yesterday. But this is much more important than family. This is Jesus, the Son of God, giving up his life for me. Being the sacrificial lamb that brings God's new covenant with me. And so is this the most important thing for you? Is Jesus giving up everything for you, bringing God's forgiveness to you, is that the most important thing? Or have you been losing sight of what Jesus has done for you? You know, what's the most important thing in your life right now? Right now. Or what's the thing that's been consuming all your attention What's the thing you've been, maybe something that you're struggling with at the moment, something that's, that's hard or, or scary and that's where your focus is. Maybe it's something wonderful that you look forward to celebrating or experiencing. Is there something that's so big in your mind 
that you're not seeing Jesus clearly. Well, Jesus is inviting you to feast on him, to be part of all that his death achieved, to experience the promise of forgiveness of sins, eternal fellowship with God, and a life filled with purpose of serving a master who loves you so much. There is nothing more important than that.